Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Republicans at a ground level were coming into conflict with criminals because by the 1980s, what transformed Irish crime was heroin. And you have drugs as becoming the, the blight that destroyed a section of the Dublin working class. And Republicans lived in that class. And when communities responded to the threat of, of heroin, Republicans responded as well. So this is actually where Cal and, and his friends first came into conflict with the IRA. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The Regency Hotel trial lifted the lid on the one secretive links between Dublin's gangland criminals and armed Republican groups. Secret recordings of conversations played in court showed how Jerry Hutch still believed the IRA had the power to call a halt to the feud on the city streets. But unlike previous generations of criminals who feared Republicans, the Kinahan cartel were not cowed by dissidents and took the fight to the paramilitaries. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College about his book, Republicanism, Crime and Paramilitary Policing in Ireland, and about the IRA's uneasy relationship with so-called ordinary crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So the Regency trial, of course, heard the uh, incredible you know, crossover between the dissident Republicans that remain in the North and the Hutch gang and all of that. I mean, it, it's going to be a, a a wonder for future historians, I'd imagine, Brian, all of the details of those connections. Um, but of course, uh, the the links between Republicanism and, and criminality, they go back 100 years since the start of the state. Probably my actual first memory of reading newspapers would be um, in the 1980s, where you had this kind of cultural war um, where, you know, Republicans Republicans were either being put put forward as uh, the paramafia or else obviously in their own their own media, like on Publix, they were being put forward as freedom fighters. I mean, that's a, a cultural war that's really gone on 100 years now in, in Irish history, is it? It is, yeah. I mean, during the War of Independence, the British authorities would have labelled the IRA as a murder gang and would have claimed they were being paid to do the things they did. During the Civil War, the new Free State government 
use the label of criminality to try and demonise the anti-treaty IRA. And then up to the modern era in the 1970s, because of the success actually of the the Hollywood blockbuster, the British uh, government began to call the IRA the godfathers of violence and so on. And it was a way to try and criminalise the Republican struggle. So Republicans in particular in the 1970s and 1980s were obviously very keen to show that they were completely different, that there was no aspect of criminality to what they were doing, that they were a political movement, had political aims, they were fighting for national liberation, and that this was just a label basically used by their enemies to try and demonise them or to try and and blacken their name. Yeah, however, you know, if you go back, it is a complicated picture, even back to the the front of the state, because the Republicans and and the IRA and its various versions, um, not only were they being linked to criminality as fundraising, but also... um, they were acting at times as 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 a police force, I suppose, and that continues up into the north. I mean, just to this day, I mean, just this week, there's there's a, a guy kneecapped in in Derry, and um, it's been put out that it's to do with antisocial behaviour. Let's say, so they've had a du- a dual role, even back even back in the in the 1920s. That would have that would have been yeah. Existed. I mean, there was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And the doll was saying, we're an independent republic. And one of the things you have to do in an independent republic is have law and order. So they rejected the British courts and they rejected the Royal Irish Constabulary. But large parts of the country were ungoverned. And actually, there was a crime wave, 1919, 1920. There's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. And they they had a republican police. Yeah. some of the things they did, like involve fining people for not having lights on their bikes, yeah. making sure pubs stuck to their closing times, yeah. stopping pochine distribution yeah. and selling, as well as on occasion solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, this and was taking a reward as well, I think. Yes, and getting rewarded by the banks for doing so. So that went along in tandem with waging an armed struggle against the British forces. Yeah. And also then by 1921, because funds were a problem. Yeah. In some cases, IRA units also then begin to carry out robberies in order to fund yeah. arming themselves. Which And some of these robberies actually, if you go back, it's actually interesting, uh, some of the names even of, 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 of the gangs that the IRA were dealing with. I think there was the Sons of Dawn, was it? And there was, a, there was another bit I read in your book of a guy called Hatchet Connor, which we've had hatchets in the modern era as well. Yeah, well or, the, the Sons of Dawn were a gang from Dublin's inner city. Yeah. And they were robbing department stores in Dublin and the department stores asked the IRA to try and capture them. Yeah. And what the IRA tended to do, it actually, in general, in that period, there wasn't kneecapping. Yeah. Um, they didn't tend to shoot criminals. They tended to deport people or in the countryside to make them work on farms for a period or bring them to kind of isolated cottages yeah. and hold them there for a while. Now, in a few cases, they did flog suspects yeah. um, and they did also on occasion kill people but it was relatively rare in comparison to what else yeah. was going on at the time um, and there were other gangs for example the term the black hand is used by gangs right across Ireland so there was a, a criminal underground as well and even like that even went up until even got to a point of, of a shooting in 1938 um, when a, a gang member I suppose as as they, were, as they recall now was actually shot dead by a, an IRA guy during one of the... It was a dispute about newspapers, really, wasn't it? Well, this was, yeah, this is the kind of post-treaty uh, period. It's yeah. in, in the 1930s. Again, people will have heard of the animal gangs who were fairly famous gangs in North and South Inner City Dublin. 
Some of them saw them as kind of Robin Hoods. Others saw them as basically intimidating money lenders and, and, and thugs. But a lot of them started off as newsboys selling newspapers on the street. Yeah. Um, there's a strike in 1934. The IRAs on Fublock is allowed published by the strike committee. The newsboys got into a dispute with the IRA over the price of the paper, it seems. Yeah. But they attacked the IRA. They beat up IRA volunteers. So the IRA went to their hangouts. The RD Hall in Talbot Street was one of them. Yeah. Held them up with weapons, you know, with guns and told them they'd be dealt with if they pursued this. And it calmed down for a few years, but clashes continued. And as you can imagine, these young fellas, not afraid of very much. So in the late 30s, there's a few more clashes and one of them is shot dead uh, by an IRA volunteer. So still Talbot Street was still in the news many years later. A hundred years ago, it was it was tough. Yeah. And, and, and again, you did have a, a kind of criminal underworld even a century ago, yeah. um, which the IRA were interacting with and often, you know, in a policing role. Yeah. So obviously the war changed the circumstances, the World War II um, and the political situation in, in, in the Republic of Ireland in that the, the, what had been anti-treaty forces basically came to power. The war changed things in general. Um, the post-war IRA uh, made a decision conscious decision to stay really away from from criminality in the South as a as a method of fundraising. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I suppose, again, during the Civil War, the IRA had carried out bank yeah. robberies and post office robberies to try and fund the anti-treaty IRA. Yeah. But really, from the mid-20s onwards, they, they didn't, and they tried to get funding from abroad. Uh, they tried to raise their own money, but they, they, they did steer clear of, of what would be considered now armed crime. Yeah. In the 40s, during the war years, when things got very bad for the IRA North and South, they returned to bank robberies. And yeah. In fact, IRA volunteers were, were executed for carrying out bank robberies during the war. This was disastrous in political terms and in publicity terms. And in the late 40s, the IRA made a decision to concentrate everything on ending partition on a campaign against yeah. the northern state and to avoid any conflict in the South. And that included any conflict with the police here, but also anything that could be considered armed crime. Ordinary crime. Ordinary crime. Describe it, which yeah. is, so they're like, look, that's a, a big distinction, uh, you know, that we don't have time to go into what is ordinary crime and, and what is that. But they they made a distinction themselves, I suppose, obviously by the, by the rules of the state, being in the IRA was illegal, but they were making a distinction maybe then between that armed robbery. So all of these things, um, you know, the, the the world changed in the 60s in general. The IRA, uh, the circumstances the IRA were oper- operating in during during the 60s changed as well. Um, and, you know, I think there's a fascinating bit in your book where they're talking, um, I think it's 1967. Uh, I, these are obviously notes that are taken of an IRA meeting. At this point, um, I think it says they have 770 pounds in 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 funds and another hundred pounds in subscriptions or so that that's the sort of financial level that they were operating at this at that stage at this stage really any of those armed robberies and all they'd really dropped off towards the 60s is that fair to say yeah firstly the the ira weren't doing any of them and also there were very few anyway i mean from the 1930s onwards there's remarkably little armed crime yeah in in the 26 counties and even in, in the north but the IRA in the 60s trying to reorganize, trying to rearm, becoming very involved in left-wing politics, yeah. but broke. Yeah. And they're not getting much money from Irish America. A lot of their supporters are taking a dim view of their left-wing politics. Yeah. And they begin to discuss again, you know, the possibility of, well, there's, you know, the banks have money and we don't, you know, 
Yeah. This isn't for ourselves. We're not criminals. Yeah. We're not doing it to enrich ourselves. We're doing it for a cause to build the movement. And they begin to discuss this again. And some people are very wary of it and say, no, it got us a bad name in the past. You don't want to be going down that road. But then they're looking at what some of their disaffected members are doing. Yeah. And from 1967 onwards, a small group of Republicans in Dublin had begun to carry out robberies themselves. Yeah. Uh, they robbed the Royal Bank in, in Drumcondra. I mean, they're talking big big enough money at those stages, yeah. those robberies. I mean, huge money, obviously, in, in the context of inflation. And, you know, there was... there. So this group is called SER Era. And that really is, you know, the beginning of organised crime in Ireland in a, in one sense, like yeah, I mean, I think they modern organised. They would dispute that too because they would have said this was this was for a cause. But yeah. nevertheless, it is new. I mean, the the, the robbery in Drumcondra is a sensation because something like this hadn't happened in a long time. Yeah, and they carry out very audacious robberies, and also they're you know they're doing things which the IRA wouldn't have done, for example. So they're admitting they're carrying out the robberies. They're issuing statements yeah. saying we did it, and they're also then sometimes cutting telegraph wires or telephone wires, setting up checkpoints. In other words, you know, obviously, yeah, coming their noses at the state, yeah, gets huge publicity. Yeah. But it also leads the IRA to think, well, look, you know, if they can do it, yeah, why can't? Why aren't we doing it? And ultimately, the IRA decide in 1969 to return to this form of fundraising, and they rob a secure car van at Dublin Airport of twenty-five thousand pounds, which is very, very big money. Yeah. They obviously deny involvement, says nothing to do with us, but nevertheless, this does mark a, a change in tactics. And so at this at this point, are they operating differently across the border and down here? Are, they, are the IRA making a distinction between operations in, 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 in the six counties and the Republic? This is just prior to yeah. the North exploding. It does in August 69. Yeah. And that changes everything. Yeah. I mean, that makes rearmament, it makes funding, the need for it very acute. Yeah. And... The decisions which they've taken a long time to come to about robberies, yeah. and that's solved for them. There's yeah. no other way they're going to get this money very quickly. So after 1969, what becomes the official IRA carries yeah. out robberies north and south and in Britain. Ultimately, the provisional IRA starts to do so as well. And for a little while, Sarah are still carrying out robberies. But there's there's a landmark case, which in yeah. many ways, you know, people of an older generation will remember. Sarah rob a bank in in spring of 1970 on Aaron Key yeah. and a Garda is shot dead. That's the first time that it happened since 1943. It completely changes the political atmosphere in the South, yeah. changes the attitude of, of the state and the police force as well and ushers in a new era really in terms of, of this relationship between armed crime and, and republicanism. I mean, Sarah era, of course, would be um, like we've done podcasts, of course, on Larry Dunn um, People like that, uh, you know, who have who are really the the foundation of of maybe modern drug dealing in Ireland. Larry Dunn, in particular, obviously Christy Dunn would have been uh, associated with with Sarah Eric. Christy Dunn would have been Larry Dunn's older brother. So there were, and he's still alive, of course. Um, and I think he's spoken about some of those times himself. I mean, at this point, who are the members of the the IRA? In the in the twenty six counties, and obviously there is there's a split there that you've spoken about. You've written a book about, of course, those times. The official IRA um, or the IRA splits into the official IRA and the provisional IRA. And um, the official IRA are very much kind of a, a left wing uh, ethos, and provisional IRA probably are stronger in in the six counties. Um, do they take a different approach to? Yeah, I mean, types of things. Yeah, they do initially. Firstly, the official IRA 
it never says it's doing this, but it essentially begins to carry out armed robberies to try and fund itself. In 1972, their director of operations, Seamus Costello, says they've taken about £70,000 in robberies over the previous two years. Yeah. Serera remain very small, and because they are small and on the fringes, you do have these criminal elements like the Duns coming into yeah. contact with them. And also because they're so reckless and seem to have... There's a big question here about politics as well. If you're trying to build a political movement yeah. and you're trying to have a political impact, you want to avoid civilians being shot in robberies. You want to avoid... Even if you want to rob a bank, you want to make sure nobody gets hurt yeah. in it. Whereas by the end of it, Serera begin to attract people who are there for the buzz as well as the money. Yeah. The major Republican organizations would have looked at it very differently and they would have tried to be far more disciplined. Now, the official IRA are carrying out robberies north and south and in Britain, as yeah. I say. The provisional IRA initially take the view that the 26 counties are off limits, that you don't carry out robberies there. Yeah. You can in the six counties and you can in Britain, but if you're caught, you're not to admit any uh, association with yeah. them. That changes in 1973. The provisionals begin to carry out robberies in the South, and they eventually set up units that are specially there for that purpose. And the South becomes one of the main places that they do try and carry out this type of fundraising. But for them, this is not crime. Yeah. This is the necessity of waging a war, yeah. whereby, firstly, you need weapons. And unless you've got a foreign power who's going to give them to you for free, yeah. you need to buy them, and they're going to be expensive. You also then have volunteers on the run who need to be housed. You've got, ultimately, hundreds of people in prison whose families need to be given something as well. And you've got a political movement, which also needs funding. So a lot of money yeah. involved. And as far as you're concerned, the banks and so on, you know, they're not anything to... No, I mean, to, they're, they're, to. I mean they're not alone in, in I suppose, in, in thinking that the banks are, are a victimless crime in the sense, you know, and people, oh, plenty of people, I mean, the ordinary decent criminal tag that, that, that you know, that, that operated for Dublin criminals as well, who made a distinction between that type of crime and maybe, you know, drug dealing or racketeering or whatever in, in the South. However, like, as as we go through the 70s, there's more and more of these bank robberies. As you said, some of them are going wrong. Innocent people are getting hurt or at least traumatised. And the IRA, are they are trying to keep one step removed in a, in a, in a public sense, aren't they? And in certainly disassociating themselves with some of these things, in particular, the official IRA who... Yeah, the official IRA basically go down the, the political road relatively quickly yeah. and they become Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, and yeah. then the Workers' Party. And they begin to deny any involvement in yeah. paramilitarism. And yeah. what happens is the official IRA internally becomes known as Group B. Yeah. It remains in existence. Yeah. So what they try to do, firstly, is you know have people involved who are not well-known to be connected with the movement, who will, if they're caught, deny any political involvement and who'll serve time in prison as ordinary criminals. Now, yeah. that's a big step for Republicans. The provisionals would never do that. You know, yeah. the provisionals see themselves as, as prisoners of war. Uh, they don't want to have any uh, hint of, of criminality. What the officials also then realise is that, again, in Dublin in particular, there is a criminal underworld who yeah. you can use for certain things, like, for example, stolen cars or laundering money or providing, you know, logistical yeah. support. And maybe you can use some of them to carry out operations for you yeah. and share money with them. And I think it's in the 70s, people like Eamon Kelly kind of come into the official's orbit in that way. Now, that's always problematic. Yeah. And there are always people who find it very difficult to have to deal with actual criminals. Yeah. But the official IRA does begin to 
to to use that. And they kind of they kind of mentored him, or even rent out weapons, or maybe give information about about banks or whatever. So they they do have one step removed. Obviously, Eamon Kelly uh, has has then has many appearances in the Sunday World over 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 thirty year period, and um, would he'd ultimately be killed by by the real IRA. But before that, he would have become one of the the first major cocaine importers into Ireland. Um, but he was—he would not be a member of the official IRA, even though I think the Sunday World have declared him that on a couple of occasions. But these people, they weren't signed up members, but they were given that protection, maybe. Yeah, they would have been given a level of protection. And, and they, I mean, I think he used the official IRA's title to threaten people yeah. in the early 80s. But they wouldn't have been volunteers in the IRA's sense. But yeah. what begins to happen again by the 70s and 80s is that the Republican movement certainly by that stage, very much a working class movement, yeah. very much based in poorer areas, yeah. areas where there's already a criminal subculture. Republicans might have social contact with people who are involved in crime. They might be criminals who claim some sympathy with them. It's very eager not to become enmeshed with these people, but ultimately, even in a, in a, on a global basis, we are trying to smuggle weapons or smuggle other yeah. things. You're not going to find a pure line unless it's from a foreign government. Yeah, you know. So there's always interaction with criminals, and that does make things messier. Oh, look, and the reality, Brian, is that people like people in the IRA had nephews and cousins and all who'd be involved in criminality because it was really all coming from the one, mostly from the same working class areas in Dublin. Um, just that normal level of connections. I think there. this is particularly an issue south of the border. You don't see the same, even though all the different paramilitary groups are involved in different kinds of, of fundraising yeah. in, in the north itself. The IRA's role there, again, very often provisional IRA, but also the other groups, mm. very often a policing role yeah. after the early 70s where communities want them yeah. to police those communities because the police are not acceptable um, and also because there is a level of antisocial crime and other forms of crime that people do want dealt with. Yeah. So you always have this question that there's a genuine need for people to feel protected from criminality yeah. and who's going to do that? And sometimes Republican groups willingly or sometimes, you know, maybe more reluctantly do also perform that function. Yeah. But again, I'd stress that, you know, the, the IRA would have said throughout this period and, and this is the same time that men and women are undergoing blanket protests, are going on hunger strike. Yeah. They're saying, criminals don't do this. No. We, you know, there's there's a big difference between us and, and criminals. And I remember at one point, the, the New York Police Department band played in Bundoran for a hunger strike rally. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously a reporter said, how come, you know, you're policemen, yeah. why are you playing for these people? Yeah. And he said, I've never come across a criminal who's prepared to starve themselves to death. Right. You know? So the, I think there is very much a difference, even though the worlds do collide. Yeah. And obviously there's also a crossover. Yeah. Because firstly, Ireland is also a pretty small place yeah. and a pretty intimate place it at is. times as well. Yeah, it is. And of course, then, you know, the, the, like the IRA was maybe a disciplined organisation, but it didn't have a total discipline of, you know, of everything that went on. And I think that was particularly true, probably south of the border, that these things did occur. Um, so by the end of the 70s, like if we go back 10 years after they had 900 quid or whatever in the bank account, by the end of the 70s, they're making maybe half a million a year, really, from bank robberies. Is that fair to say, on average? Possibly even more. But I think by the late 70s, what the, the Gardaí would have said was that maybe 30% yeah. of the robberies were being carried out by Republican groups. And and now 
criminals were doing more, but the criminals had been inspired and yeah. had realised that this was a, a viable route by yeah. the Republicans. But the biggest robberies are really being carried out by the most organised discipline groups, which yeah. tended to be the, the, the armed yeah. uh, Republican groups. But it also gets more difficult because, firstly, people are being killed in yeah. robberies. Yeah. Number of Gardaí are killed as well. The Gardaí become more heavily armed. Yeah. The banks become more secure. Yeah. So people do, both the criminal underworld and also Republicans are, are being forced to kind of look at other ways to, to fundraise. And there's all these questions about smuggling and racketeering and all these things and, and, you know, raising money through social clubs, looking again for aid from abroad. I mean, the, the Libyan government provides arms and money, which, you know, means, you know, that probably on a bigger scale than any robbery yeah. would have provided in, in the 1980s. But nevertheless, it, it did dramatically change the whole shape of Irish crime and the crime world, north and south. And then, of course, you had the, the emergence of a couple of things in the 80s, like the, for the INLA, um, who, and then the kidnappings. I mean, the kidnappings were, I remember them growing up. You probably remember them as well, like... Uh, without knowing the full details as a kind of a child, but everybody remembers Ben Dunn, for example, being kidnapped or Don Tidy, who passed away not so long ago. I mean, these were, this was kind of the next stage of of of, of crime, really, wasn't it, for, for the Republican groups? Well, they took a decision, the Provisional IRA took a decision at some point that this would be a viable way of yeah. getting large amounts of money. Yeah. And that seemed to be the case initially, it's alleged anyway in the yeah. Ben Dunn case. But then it became, and this is the problem, you see, because there's, if you're a criminal gang, you don't really care what the public think about No, you. no. But the IRA have a political cause and they also have a political movement attached to them. Yeah. And the robbery, or the kidnappings, politically ended up being disastrous because you had, in the, the Don Tidy case, ultimately a soldier and a guard are killed in a gun battle. You had huge publicity, negative publicity yeah. attracted towards the IRA. You had... Massive state clampdown. So, you know, you've got roadblocks with yeah. what tends to happen and, and what sometimes IRA complained about was they'd have training camps or they'd have arms dumps or they'd have things going on. And then another unit would carry out a robbery and the area would be swamped with guardy or soldiers. Yeah. And this would lead to other things being uncovered. So actually, the, the kidnappings may have seemed to work initially, but they're dropped once they become politically counterproductive. Because of course, like uh, maybe slightly underground from what was going on in the public, Sinn Féin at all, at all of these times were gradually moving towards being a political movement as well. Like, I mean, even in, in the 80s, that was, that, that became, like, they became conscious that that could be the end game. And these things really damaged them, I think, in the South. Yeah, I mean, they, they'd identified, the Republican leadership had identified the South post-1981 hunger strikes yeah. as an area of growth for political growth. Um, and it became apparent that political growth could be really hampered yeah. by a so certainly association with conflict with the Gardaí, yeah. who remained for most people, yeah. you know, a legitimate force. Yeah. And also conflict with the Irish army would have been seen as, as unacceptable. And Republicans did try to avoid that. Yeah. I mean, in the 70s, a number of people are killed in robberies by the IRA. In the 80s, there isn't. Yeah. You know, so there is a level of discipline and, and care. But nevertheless, it becomes much more difficult for them. And then you also have a question of, well, now you do have a much more organized criminal underworld yeah. in the South, particularly in Dublin, that's flexing its muscles. And how are Republicans going to yeah. deal with that? And of course, that, that the, the, one of the real, the, the most infamous or 
famous interactions between Republicans uh, and criminal gangs would have been the Martin Cahill gang and um, I suppose the, the the General's gang, as as he was known, would have been a proper organised criminal outfit with some dangerous people involved that were very heavily armed and had a, a degree of discipline. And they came into conflict with the IRA, of course, famously in the film. There was obviously a kidnappings. Uh, Martin Foley was involved, not to go into it all again. But I mean, how, how was that perceived within, within, do you think, within the IRA? Was that perceived as, as a role that they wanted to take? I think very reluctantly at a national level. Yeah. I think their main concern was the war in yeah. the North. And that this was seen as something that could interfere with that. Yeah. On the other hand, if they were threatened by criminals, they would have to respond. Now, at one level, if you can almost assassinate the British Prime Minister, yeah. you can mortar bomb Downing Street, yeah. you, you are able to kill criminals. So there yeah. was no criminal gang that could outdo no. the provisional IRA or that was strong enough to take them on. But what would happen is that Republicans at a ground level were coming into conflict with criminals because by the 1980s, what transformed Irish crime was heroin. Yeah. And you have drugs as becoming the, the blight that destroyed a section of, of Dublin, the Dublin working class. Yeah. And Republicans lived in that class. Yeah. And, and when communities responded to the threat of, of heroin, Republicans responded as well. So this is actually where Cal and, and his friends yeah. first came into conflict with the IRA during the drugs crisis in yeah. the, the early mid-80s. In that they, they obviously, they, they were getting blamed, Cahill's gang, in, in fairness to Martin Cahill, I don't think he was particularly involved in the drugs trade at all. But there were people that were maybe tangentially linked to that gang who who, who really did become involved. Um, another thing, I, I you know, and it, it actually brings back a lot of memories, but I remember the papers again from that time because it was the first time I actually was reading the newspapers and we didn't get the Sunday World in our house but we got the Sunday Indo and there was always talk about the uh, community action against drugs being this was another one of these cultural debates being infiltrated by the IRA or not being infiltrated uh, being that that this was something that the IRA were cynically using these protests or other people saying this is community taking action in itself is that, are we clear about what role they did take or didn't take at this stage? It was a spontaneous movement initially yeah. by people who were, who were driven to distraction by, by 1982, 1983, yeah. the prevalence of, of heroin dealing and, and the, the, the disaster it was wreaking on those communities. Yeah. And they looked for support. Yeah. And they initially looked for support in the North Inner City from the official IRA. Yeah. And the officials basically told them that they, they were staying out of this. Now, again, yeah. that's, a, that's another area. And then, again, because sometimes IRA members lived in these areas, they did become involved. Initially, off their own. Yeah. That, I think. And then the, what some people have called the big bluff, yeah. The fact was that Republicans were involved, but the criminals assumed they were far more involved. The criminals right. believed a lot of the hype. Yeah. So that gave the concerned parents a degree of insulation because the criminals did believe they were protected by the IRA. Now, Republicans were involved, but the only politicians who would stand with the concerned parents yeah. in the mid-80s were people like Tony Gregory yeah. and Christy Burke, who was yeah. a Sinn Féin councillor. And again, you look back on it, and I think even Senior Gardaí admit now, had that level of heroin, had that crisis been happening in Castleknock or Fox Rock, yeah. the response would have been completely different. I mean, people were driven oh, at wit's ends and they were looking at some of the people involved making huge money 
Yeah. And so the concerned parents, I think, was a, a serious social movement, a working class response that Republicans were the only people to become involved with on an organizational level and who then, of course, could provide backup yeah. had the criminals responded, which did happen in a number of instances in the 1980s um, and which then meant that the CPAD were considered a Sinn Féin front. Yeah. It was, you know, said they were infiltrated and so on. It was much more messy and complex than that, I think. And it was complex, of course, because there were figures in the IRA who, as the, the go into the 90s, were were also mixed in with... And I mean, I know some of these people ultimately would be kind of kicked out of the organisation one way or another, but they were living off the drug trade as well in various ways. I mean, I think... The, the the Sunday world and the yeah. journalists always make this accusation, but yeah. you'll, you'll struggle to find in the 1970s, 80s or, or into the 90s yeah. any Republicans being charged with things like this. No. So, I mean, even I think the RUC would have said, we don't believe the IRA are, are involved in that type of activity. And generally when they did the rundown of what the different paramilitary groups were involved in, yeah. said that the provisions are not involved in no. the drug trade. Now, you can say by the 1990s, by the peace process, by the ceasefire, yeah. People welcome peace and they welcome the ceasefires, but that does change things again yeah. in terms of the relationship between Republicans and the criminal underworld. And the criminal underworld ultimately becomes stronger as peace goes. Because on. as you as you go through the like the early nineties or maybe the late eighties, like the the provisional IRA obviously became the dominant IRA, obviously, and they really did call the shots in in the criminal underworld. For example, with some of the drug dealers, if they were told to get out of an area, they would get out if the IRA told them to. I mean, that that's fair to say, is it? Yeah, I think that's generally fair to say. There was no criminal group who who would have a- attempted to take them on physically. And again, you know, the, the IRA killed Martin Cahill just before the first ceasefire. And I think that was in part a message to criminals that even though we're going on ceasefire, that doesn't mean you can do what you like. Yeah. So when the ceasefire comes, um, obviously the, the, the IRA call a ceasefire, then, you know, breaks down and call another one. Um, then in the aftermath of that, of course, is the Northern Bank robbery, which was, I suppose, in a good few years after the, the ceasefires. I mean, what did that tell us at that point then about the the IRA and its operations? Like, are they still thinking of these actions as criminality? Are they still involved there? What is the motivation for that? Because I know they probably got more money than they expected to and it became a big story. But, you know, they must have known that this was going to be linked to them anyway. There's a number of things. Basically, after the first ceasefire, the IRA had had continued to carry out robberies. Mm. Um, and a couple of them had disastrous consequences, yeah. both for the people involved and also politically. Yeah. There's a postal worker killed in Newry yeah. in 94, and the IRA admitted doing that, but said it wasn't sanctioned. And then uh, Jerry McCabe was killed in the Adair post office robbery, which ultimately the IRA also admitted doing. Yeah. Now, that had a big political knock-on effect. So I think the decision was made to all, you know, to in the longer run to wind this type of stuff down, yeah. even if the rank and file weren't going to be let know that for a while. Yeah. And there's there's basically a theory, and 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 I don't have the I'm not privy to to, to to the thinking that they wanted to show the British and the Irish governments that they were still capable of large scale operations. They're not gone away, you know. They're not gone away. Yeah. 
but in a way that didn't involve bombing London or anything like that. So yeah. robbing the Northern Bank was a message to the state that we still have this capacity, we still have the intelligence to do it, and hopefully also to take large amounts of money. But it also, that, along with the, the murder of, of Robert McCartney, which happened shortly afterwards, that actually contributed to a political crisis, which did force the Republican movement again to probably move a bit faster in terms of, of decommissioning. Yeah. And I think decommissioning and, and the kind of disbandment of the provisional IRA have had a major knock-on effect in terms of a, a, a big player who, who could have acted as a bulwark in terms of, of some forms of organized crime. Yeah leaving the stage, to use the phrase that they use themselves. So, of course, the provisional IRA, which were, you know, well-resourced by the time of the ceasefires, well-resourced and, and certainly had a lot of members who weren't criminals, if you if you want, um, and, you know, had a, had a discipline and a structure. As, as they depart the scene, what is left are the dissident groups. Are they a totally distinct sort of force than what had gone before? You see, all the different armed Republican groups share a historical lineage, yeah. which does make them different in many ways. And, and many of them are involved in forms of political activism, which does make them different from yeah. criminals. Yeah. And, and they, of course, all deny any criminal of course, yeah. intent or, yeah. or, or... Yeah, and or, we're not going yeah. to solve that. On, on, and, 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 and the point about them is that they also then feel that there was a vacuum left. So the, some of the, the anti-agreement groups would have said... When the provisional IRA left the scene, you still had the antisocial elements, you still had the rapists, you still had the housebreakers. So who was going to deal with them except us? Yeah. And in some communities, there was still a demand for them to do that. So, and, and, and still is. Yeah, and so they've continued doing that in different yeah. parts of yeah. the country to a greater or lesser extent. Now, some of these groups have then also said that, you know, this is really problematic. So you've got, you know, a myriad now of smaller armed groups who are accusing each other of criminality or accusing each other of, of, of being, you know, politically bankrupt. And that has, in many ways, I think, weakened the Republican um, cause because, you know, what's it represented by? And also then has left the ground open for all kinds of criminal elements to, to take advantage simply of, of that vacuum. So, again, it, it, it's not rocket science in some ways. Yeah. There isn't, I don't think you would have had anything like the way the Keenan mm. organization was able to operate in Dublin had the provisional IRA still been in existence. Mm. They wouldn't have been afraid of the Keenahans and they would have been, you know, going to Dubai wouldn't have made any difference really, you know. No. So that's, that's a whole different world. And, and you can see that even in terms of the, some of the, the far-right activities, the anti-immigrant protests. I mean, criminal elements are using those to kind of push the envelope to see how far they can go yeah. in taunting Sinn Féin and in trying to, you know, say, see how much of that vacuum still exists, that there is no yeah. comeback. That wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. No, and of course, what you, what you had, I suppose, what you see in the Regency trial is you see that Jared uh, Hutch, who was really... Uh, would have known Republicans all his life. I think that's a hundred percent fair to say, and would have, you know, would have had personal and family connections with loads of the the, the people that would have been associated with the IRA as he as he grew up and went through his through his life. Um, when the the feud kicked off, um, he turned to the to to the Republicans to take on that old role that they had, which was kind of the. Uh, would it be fair to say that the final? say on what happened 
um, he, he, t- he turned to them for help. But what you'd seen with the Kinnahans was, I think, from maybe 2010 onwards, they become a multi-billion organization, uh, multi-millions of, you know, endless resources, really. Um, do you think that the the murder of Michael Barr was a turning point, really, in, in that relationship between organized crime groups and, and what's left of the dissident organizations? Well, it seemed to be, again, an indication that the Keenans didn't care yeah. if somebody was connected to republicanism, yeah. that they were still prepared to kill them and that they maybe didn't expect there to be a backlash. Now, I don't know why there wasn't. I mean, I think, again, if you go back 20, 25 years, I remember a feature on Jerry Hutch in McGill magazine where it was quite clear that, you know, there was some affection for him or at least some respect for him among Republicans and that they yeah. were, they were very careful to say he's not involved in the drugs trade and things like that. Yeah. So I think he probably banked on having some credibility with them. Yeah. Um, but again, the, the Republican political scene is so fractured now mm. that he possibly would have been able to get some backing from somebody. Yeah. But that would not mean that there'd be a national organization prepared to support him no. all the way through a feud like this. And I think for the general public and for their perception of republicanism, it's extremely damaging because they, I mean, if you go back to 2012, there was this series of love-hate yeah. which featured this storyline before it happened. Yeah. And the view of, of republicans in that was an extremely negative one and they were presented entirely as criminals, essentially. Yeah. And I don't remember there being any complaints or anybody saying that's really unfair. Yeah. So you can see really that the perception of republicans these days has been damaged by the perceived connections with criminality and so on. In a way that in the 1980s, even to the 1990s, people would have said, hang on, you're talking about people who are prepared to starve themselves to death. You're talking about people who've waged a war against the British state for 20 years. You can't just say they're criminals. And, and, you know, it's kind of mirrored on the other side as well, if you look at the loyalists, because we obviously do lots of stories about the loyalists in our Northern edition, and we'll always get people calling up and they always, they're always saying, oh, they're just drug dealers, you know? I mean, that is people from their own community. So that that perception of them as freedom fighters, which they will still suggest, still say and still put out, obviously, the, the, the Republicans, the perception of them within the communities has, has changed, I believe. Um, the role of them as a police force, are they still having that role in, in the North, in some of these dissident groups, or is that changing as well? Well, I think it's still a role they see for themselves at times. And again, there are some Republicans involved with these organizations who said, ultimately, look, this doesn't solve the problem. You don't make it go away by doing these things. Yeah. And we've got to think of some other way. But crime has got worse. Yeah. Communities still cry out for some form of protection. So the most basic form of protection is you know, get somebody to shoot them. So people will always, I think, want that solution. I mean, it's ironic in some ways that, you know, there are people who wouldn't be interested in an armed struggle against the British. Yeah. But they do want the IRA to shoot drug dealers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there will be people who want them to do that. And to some extent, doing that gives them a purpose. But I think they themselves realise now that crime is so enmeshed, the criminal subculture has become such a part of Irish life. Yeah. That, not just antisocial activity, but the glamour of organised crime, that this is not going to be solved by kneecappings or it would be, you know, 
hard to see how any Republican organization could turn around and say we're going to solve, we're going to, we're going to stop all the criminals. No, I mean it is a different thing as well than maybe bank robberies where you had huge sums of money, relatively huge sums of money. Um, but the drug trade is different, and the amount of money to be made, and and how you know you can have fourteen year olds making a lot of money. There wasn't a lot of successful fourteen year old bank robbers back in the eighties. Um, looking to the future, Brian, in your in your the final piece of your book, you write about you maybe looking at what is going to happen um, with some of the dissident organisations left, and you're you're. I'm summarising it to say that that those links of criminality are not likely to, to, the perceived links of criminality are, that that's really how it's going for them. I think again, you see, and I'm not taking a moralistic position no, no. on this, but the genie is out of the bottle now. Yeah. Organised crime is part of Irish life. Yeah. And criminality and the kind of glamour of criminality is kind of enmeshed yeah. in a lot of communities. So it would be very difficult for an organisation to step back and say that this has nothing to do with us and we'll completely avoid it, even though we need to smuggle in weapons, even though we need to fund ourselves. And even the practicalities of, in the 1970s, for a few years, the IRA was able to rob banks almost at will because there was very little security and there was also, you know, a great deal of popular support that enabled them to carry these things out. That no longer exists either. That's a different world too. So I think that, Unfortunately, you have a kind of depressing scenario in that you've got widespread criminality. It's it's a major problem. You've still got communities that want somebody to a help solution, them. yeah, a solution. Yeah, you've got the state perceived as falling down, particularly for some mm. embattled communities. And then you also have Republicans who have different political ideas, who are involved in different forms of political activity, but who, if they still maintain the need for a form of armed struggle, yeah are always going to be in a position where they have to do illegal activities, which brings them into contact with, yeah. with other people who are, are carrying out illegal activities. Yeah, I mean, it, and that's it's the money. The money attracts all these things, ultimately, uh, the money of the drug trade. You know, when you see the, the huge amounts of money to go on, uh, to go back to trying to do armed robberies is, is you know, victimless crimes is what? very... It, it did transform Irish society and, and a lot of historians, and I'm in the historical profession, completely underestimate how that changed Ireland. Uh, heroin produced one of the biggest shifts in, a, in our culture, both in terms of, of the inner city working class and then yeah. beyond, but also then in terms of, of crime and society yeah. in general. And that has, has had a myriad of negative effects. And maybe if people could go back to the 1980s, and look at some of the headlines about the concerned parents and say, well, no, they should have been given much more state support at the time and they wouldn't have been a need for yeah. anything else. No, I mean, it, look, it wiped out a generation of parents, even at a most basic level, it, it, you know, it left a whole group of children without parental figures. I mean, it's, it was a desperate impact. And then there was a second wave, I think, where you had the kind of designer drugs boom and that's that's injected all this 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 money and unpicking it is not going to be simple and you know it's not going to be simple for the state but certainly uh, kneecapping a few people isn't going to solve it either so well that was uh, very interesting Brian thanks for coming in and thanks very much we don't always have uh, history professors on crime world but maybe we'll do a few more in the future cheers thanks a lot okay. <laughs> that's right you've been listening to crime world a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, 
leave us a review or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.